Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy retires, kicking off a battle for a key seat on the nation's highest court. This is the Influence Watch podcast. To understand what's happening today with the Supreme Court, we must turn back to 1987, when liberal interest groups won one of their most consequential battles as the Senate voted down the nomination of a conservative hero, Judge Robert Bork, to uh, be on the Supreme Court. The seat he was nominated to fill was eventually filled by Anthony Kennedy, a weathervane justice who voted for decisions that forced states to recognize same-sex marriages and that upheld the court's creation of a right to have elective abortions. But Justice Kennedy also voted for decisions this week that upheld the Trump administration's power to temporarily exclude nationals from certain foreign countries from the United States and that ended government worker unions' power to force non-members to pay union fees. Then yesterday, that court seat opened again as Justice Kennedy announced his retirement after 30 years on the Supreme Court. The battle over whoever President Trump chooses to nominate will be furious and fiercely partisan, with interest groups on both sides trying to affect judicial policy for decades to come. So, Mike, let's start with that 1987 battle that the younger listeners won't even have uh, heard of and I was, remember. I was not alive. I was literally not alive. Um, but I think when you're trying to set the stakes of what's going to happen over the next over this coming summer, uh, I think looking back to 1987 very well establishes the stakes. The uh, the uh, left liberals organized uh, very strongly to defeat a, I think it would it is reasonable and fair, you knew Judge Bork, uh, to call him a very staunch conservative. <laughs> yes, well, and it, it, he was announced, he, he was the leading conservative constitutional scholar of his day, and he, you know, he was a Marine in not one, but two wars, World War II and Korea. He signed up at the age of 17 to join the Marine Corps after seeing the Commandant uh, say at right after, as the Battle of Iwo Jima was going on, we will take Mount Suribachi if it takes every last Marine. <laughs> so unsurprisingly, he was a combative gentleman and as well as a brilliant legal theorist. Uh, he, to this day, he completely rewrote antitrust law effectively just by his arguments as a University of Chicago law professor. So, And he also had famously carried out the Saturday Night Massacre uh, firing of special counsel Archibald Cox uh, that President Yeah, on, on, be, on behalf of Nixon at yeah. the— in, At the during, height of water. During, at the, yes, the, the, the train that ultimately led to Nixon's resignation in lieu of impeachment kind of begins with the Saturday Night Massacre and the firing of Archibald Cox. Yes, and you can, one of Bork's books is his own internal uh, memoir about that time. He almost resigned rather than carry out the order, but the two people above him, he was the Solicitor General and the, the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General above him had resigned because they wouldn't do this. He was tortured about it because he didn't think it was right to fire Cox, but he was persuaded by friends that, look, if you go, then the Justice Department's completely headless, and that doesn't make things better for those of us who want to contain Mr. Nixon, so you've got to do this. And between that and his combative legal arguments, uh, he was easily despised and very, by and the And very left. strong social conservatism. Yeah, and social conservatism on top of all that. So that within minutes of the announcement that he had been nominated, which was not particularly a surprise that he was, 
Uh, Ted Kennedy was on the Senate floor. Uh, this is Ted Kennedy of the Waitress Sandwiches with Senator Chris Dodd, for the record. Yes, yes, a a a man of very little moral standing himself, but he delivered a uh, vicious, vicious speech for an uh, extended period about how in Judge Bork's America, uh, blacks won't be served at lunch counters and all, and scurrilous, incredible smears um, that launched this whole wave of attacks. Bork's nomination was delayed longer than any had ever been delayed by far. This is the first really, the point is right, all this, this is right, this the is, first vicious fight. Right, the, the Bork nomination and the fight over it begins the modern era of Supreme Court judicial nominations that end in the fierce partisanship that we are going to see over the next couple of months. And that brings us into the groups that fight, that fought then and still fight now. Uh, you have mentioned that leading the leading the charge against Bork was a group called People for the American Way, led by uh, Hollywood TV producer Norman Lear. Uh, at the time, back in the 80s, they spent the then unheard of sum on a, an advocacy campaign of one and a half million dollars to rally liberals and progressives uh, in both parties, it must be said, because this was before the full sorting of uh, of liberals and conservatives into the two political parties uh, to defeat Bork's nomination. Uh, that's that's correct. Uh, he did finally go down. Now it's uh, again, if you want that story from Bork's perspective, uh, pick up his book, The Tempting of America, which the last part of which is his description of the battle. Um, the uh, it's I can tell you as somebody who knows the Borks that the. Uh, some years later, uh, Mr. Justice Kennedy told the family uh, when he bumped Mr. Into Justice them, Kennedy. Or sorry, or not the, Mr. Yeah, no, 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 I apologize. The, I misspoke. Uh, sorry, Senator Ted Kennedy. Senator Ted Kennedy. The, the Senator Ted Kennedy, who never hurt anyone in his life. Ha ha ha. <laughs> yes, he uh, he. Some years later, uh, shrugged his shoulders and said, "Eh, nothing personal." Um, but uh, Wonder, one wonders if he said the same thing to Mary Jo Kopechny. Uh, yes, but the um, in any event, uh, it it was a very vicious uh, battle, and uh, it was also the making of People for the American Way. Um, which was the leading group, as you said. Uh, they recruited Hollywood, famous Hollywood liberals at the time, like Gregory Peck, who then, back then was still alive and a famous movie star. Um, and if you want to know more about People for the American Way, this is a classic example of where InfluenceWatch.org can be helpful because you can look up the People for the American Way, you can look up People for the American Way Foundation, People for the American Way Action Fund, People for the American Way Voters Alliance, and Young People for a project of people for the American way. Now, the uh, I would throw in a uh, another thing that sh that's shocking in retrospect. Among the founders with Norman Lear for People for the American Way was Father Theodore Hesburgh, then the very famous president of Notre Dame and long longtime president of Notre Dame. Uh, not something I think he would want to be talking to St. Peter about when he met him at the pearly gates, but in any event, it's worth I throw that in there because uh, Kennedy of Justice Kennedy eventually takes this seat, and uh, Justice Kennedy is is Catholic, and in fact, uh, until Scalia's death uh, a year or two ago, here it was six Catholics on the court and three uh, Jews. And Nina Totenberg, NPR's left wing commentator on the court, made the very interesting point that in some ways the splits on the court was an internecine Catholic split. 
um, to a considerable extent. Now, Gorsuch now makes yeah, this a yeah, wild card right. because right. he he's, was raised Catholic. He apparently attends an Episcopal church, but it's not completely clear whether he Yeah, he, 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 he appears to be a Protestant. Um, but now we, we've discussed a little bit about Mr. Justice Kennedy, who is stepping down. Uh, he was not even the second choice of President Reagan for the vacancy created by the resignation of Lewis Powell. Uh, instead, we had uh, Justice uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg. Uh, he was defeated. He withdrew his name because he had apparently smoked marijuana in college, which tells you yeah, I, <laughs> tells well, you about where we where we where twice. We, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it and he was, actually he was it wasn't during his college. He was a college professor. Yeah, he was. Uni- yeah, he was university. Yeah, he was a university mm-hmm. professor. Um, but anyway, so his withdrawal uh, for doing something that is now legal in. 10 states, I think, uh, has led to the nomination of Anthony Kennedy. And then Kennedy was confirmed and has served on the court for, I believe, now 30 years, and he is now stepping down. That's correct. The, um, uh, and we should now talk a bit about the differences between Kennedy and Bork. Now, I will say again, I, I, mm. I knew Bork. We both worked at the American Enterprise Institute for a number of years together. And uh, he went, he had been on the second highest court in the land, which was the uh, Court of Appeals. Yeah, the United, States Circuit, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which any federal, all the federal administrative law, any decisions of federal uh, policy, fed, fed, decisions of the federal bodies, National Labor mm-hmm. Relations Board, Federal Communications Commission, they're all routed through the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is extremely powerful. Uh, and in one of the things that one of the decisions by the political branches that set the uh, set the tone for the summer that is to come, uh, Harry Reid got rid of the judicial filibuster so that he could put a bunch of president, uh, former Senator Harry Reid, former Senate Democratic leader, majority leader before 2015, uh, so that he could confirm by a simple majority vote, a vote of only his caucus, a bunch of Democrat, a bunch of President Obama's Democratic judges to the D.C. Circuit. Because that is typically the that's the uh, uh, the batter circle for right. uh, people who are going to get for people who are going to get who, who are going to potentially be nominated court. to the Supreme yeah. Court and also there's just so much administrative law that not every ju- decision can be reviewed by the Supreme Court. Yes, so it uh, so Bork had been on that with everyone expecting him to get uh, the elevation, and after he was defeated, uh, he uh, by the Senate he soon stepped down. From that, and went back to AEI, where he had been many years before, which is how I got to know him. But um, uh, for every year at the end of the Senate, or sorry, at the end of the Supreme Court's term, Bork would give a little uh, talk to the AEI uh, fellows on the year's Supreme Court decisions. And every year, of course, he was asked, how would you have voted differently from Justice Kennedy? Uh, And I can tell you, I remember the first three years, there was not a single decision, I don't believe, that Bork said he would have actually voted differently from Justice Kennedy. Uh, So that's an interesting thing. But at the same time, they were not uh, precisely the same in their judicial philosophies. So tell us a bit about that. Again, as as you mentioned earlier, Bork was one of the first exponents and most prominent exponents of the strict constructionist, originalist, textualist, the legal people will finally parse those distinctions. Uh, but for our purposes, they're all they're they're effectively synonymous. Um, and Justice Kennedy, to the extent he had he developed a jurisprudence over his thirty years on the High Court, was a weatherman. Uh, 
it was uh, Sarbamari, who's a social conservative writing it uh, at Commentary Magazine, uh, called it a jurisprudence of balderdash. <laughs> Uh, and of course, liberals attacked him as well, uh, especially after he stepped down, despite giving them, uh, despite Kennedy's vote handing them victories in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which secured uh, for another twenty years the uh, Supreme the Supreme Court's mm-hmm. uh, creation of a right to abortion in Roe v. Wade, uh, and Obergefell v. Hodges, which uh, compelled the recognition of same sex marriages. Um, and so, but uh, despite that, Ian Milheiser, the legal fellow at the left wing Center for American Progress Action Fund. Uh, called him a, quote, horrible justice. Um, he, Kennedy, because he didn't really have a consistent ideology so far, so far as anybody, any outside observer could discern, uh, tended to, dis- he dispensed wins to, to both sides, uh, kind of was jokingly referred to as the emperor, um, because, of course, you know, it was generally his, uh, his position as the swing justice, certainly after the retirement of Sandra Day O'Connor in 2005, that he he has been the the ju- the majority maker. Um, so by handing by handing wins to both sides, he became very powerful and very prominent. Yep. Now, as it happens, you mentioned Sandra Day O'Connor as a previous big swing vote, but also there was another swing vote that actually had held the seat before Kennedy. Lewis uh, Lewis Powell. Yes. Who was, nomi- who was nominated by Nixon back in the 70s. Yes, and also was a swing vote. So one of the things that's notable is that uh, it would be hard to find a justice who was nominated by a Democrat president uh, who ended up deeply disappointing his party, but it is easy to find justices oh, nominated sure. by and, Republicans. And Kennedy is, is far from the least disappointing. Uh, David Souter probably sits in that, in that seat. He was nominated by George H.W. Bush and then ultimately basically became a core of the liberal bloc until he retired uh, during Obama's first term. Um, Don't forget, however, uh, going back even further from before when I was even born, you have Chief Justice Earl Warren appointed by Eisenhower, who later said, biggest damn fool mistake I ever made. Yeah, no, the the Warren court, uh, of which Warren was a member of the progressive bloc, uh, was uh, was sort of notoriously liberal. Well, let's turn to the uh, some of the activist groups on both sides uh, that are going to be big players in this fight. Although, before before saying that, the last thing I'll say on Kennedy, uh, and I frankly I heard this from some well placed friends at one of these uh, important groups, uh, they had always told me, and obviously they were telling the truth that. Uh, not only that Mr. Justice Kennedy saw himself when he looked in the mirror as a conservative Republican, but also that he absolutely was going, if it was in his power, he was going to be certain that he had himself replaced by a Republican. He, the Republicans elevated him. He felt obliged to allow the Republicans to replace him. And it was, and before that, Lewis Powell, mm, as you say, was yeah. also a Republican seat. No, and and— Again, where the battle where the battle is going to be, what what the stakes are, uh, I think we may as well lay this out in before. Uh, President Trump, of course, during the campaign, famously released a list of judicial candidates. Yeah, a couple dozen. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think twenty four, twenty five, uh, in a couple of flights. Uh, that you know, when I have at this point the uh, vacancy created by the death of Antonin Scalia, which was later filled by Neil Gorsuch, who was on the list. Uh, well, it was open, and it was a major campaign issue. So he puts out this list uh, and says that, um, you know, I will choose from this list. And then, obviously, he chose Neil Gorsuch from the list. 
now uh, he has said, he said yesterday that he is going to choose the nominee for uh, the Anthony Kennedy retirement vacancy from the same list. Uh, so the, possi- the possibility is that you will, as with the nomination of Bork to replace Powell, that you will have a situation where a strong originalist conservative is to replace a swing justice. And that has raised the stakes in this fight, even in a way that they weren't for the, for the Gorsuch-Scalia fight. Yes, because Scalia, uh, Scalia was Because Scalia was, was, a staun- a was, a, was a staunch mm-hmm. originalist conservative. He was replaced by Neil Gorsuch, who at least after two terms appears to be a staunch originalist conservative. Yep. Well, and actually, I'll, I'll throw out just a, uh, a tidbit on why the, um, on the politics back then, uh, Bork was not the first, ju- uh, the seat Bork was nominated for was not Reagan's first shot at the court. Uh, no, I, think but, it was his, I think it was his third, right? Yeah, it was his third. The second... Uh, the first was Sandra Day O'Connor. Yep. Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, a moderate. Yep, in the first term. And then there is uh, Scalia. And people forget this, and it's kind of quaint these days, but Scalia sailed through, sailed through the Senate, even though he was best friends with Judge Bork. Um, but he A, he didn't have the kind of paper trail and combativeness and, that Bork did. And B, he was the first Italian ever n- well, nominated and, to the and, court. And not only, was he the, not only was he the first Italian in 1980, uh, he was nominated in 86, right? Uh that I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, in 1986, the control of the Senate was with the Republicans. In 1987, it was with the Democrats. That yes. will that that fact is going to the fact of Senate control is going to become important later. <laughs> but it also is important that Reagan had had uh, was then in the throes of the um, Iran Contra scandal. Yeah. Also, when Bork was in trouble, it was Iran Contra. Yeah. So the well, president so yeah. had a lot less capital. Whereas Scalia, you know, Scalia was Scalia was 87 because it was immediate almost immediately after uh, uh, Reagan wins. Or sorry, no, no. I'm screwing this up. Sorry. But anyway, it was not long after, I think it was 85. Okay. Because yeah, but, but it I, was in the 85, 86 Congress when the after, Republicans had the majority. <laughs> yes. And Reagan had just been had reelected. Just, had just been reelected very so strongly. So he, he had enormous uh, clout that way. Um, but anyway, so let's uh, let's start with the uh, the blue corner. You've talked about the people from the American way, but there are other folks on the Democrat side in this fight as well, newer folks. Well, let's start, let's start with the new guys. Uh, so as of a few months ago, there is a new social welfare advocacy group, dark money group in liberal speak, although they don't call their own groups dark money for some reason, uh, and that is Demand Justice. Uh, and by the way... Uh, they are protesting right this right, very yeah, moment. Yeah, if you, are, if you are watching this live, they are demonstrating in front of the Supreme Court. Um, As we speak. I, I, I was unable to see if they did the same thing that the liberal groups did when Gorsuch was nominated with the blank, with the we're against blank space where they had handwritten in the, <laughs> the name of the nominee. Um, but anyway, so they are looking to raise, they were looking to raise $10 million and to get an idea of who they're looking to raise. In this year. In alone. this In this year. Uh, to get an idea of who they're looking to raise money money from, uh, Brian Fallon, if that name is familiar, that's because he was the press secretary for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, uh, and who is the uh, executive director, president of Demand Justice. He was at the Democracy Alliance meeting, uh, and we've discussed the Democracy Alliance on this podcast before. Uh, The Democracy Alliance is the convening of major liberal donors, uh, including... Such luminaries as George Soros, the Pritzker family, um, Taco Bell heir, uh, the Taco Bell heir Rob Stein, uh, major institutional liberal donors like the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers, the Service Employees International Union. Uh, So 
that's the kind of people who are who are propping up this this uh, this campaign. And and again, it was started this very year. Yes, started th- started this very year. There have been rumors flying around Washington that Kennedy might retire. Uh, so they they've they've spooled this up uh, in the anticipation of that possibility, and they kind of took a dry run at a one of uh, President Trump's nominees for a district court in North Carolina. Um, and now, of course, they are spooled up for the big one. Yep. And as you said, they're basically uh, a lot of people out of the Clinton world and then also— uh, Clinton and, Ob- and Obama world. And, uh, yes, also the Obama Justice Department world. And and uh, one of the other top staffers was the Democratic uh, Senate Judiciary Committee uh, top staffer as well. Um uh, I have we have some reporters uh, from our shop, the Capital Research Center, who are at that protest now. And uh, my suggestion to them was to say, are you worried that uh, Senator Mitch McConnell is going to be uh, helped by dark money in this fight? And then to say, and where does your money? Yeah, come fun- from? yeah funnily enough, uh, the liberals who are all concerned about campaign finance reform are all very, very happy to talk to people like the Democracy Alliance, who I would love to give you a full membership list of, but it's confidential. Yes. <laughs> Uh, donor list. Don- that is uh, to yeah, say. Don- yes. don- donors. Well, to the extent the Democracy Alliance is a organization that takes in money, a donor list, but really it's a membership organization. Yes. <laughs> the um, well, now, so that's uh, that's demand justice and people for the American way. But there are some others on the left hand side of the ledger. Yeah, we mentioned people for the American way, uh, but the other sort of old guard liberal judicial policy groups. You have the Alliance for Justice. Uh, again, heavily funded by the usual suspects, Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, Ford Foundation, Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, for those who don't remember our discussion on Planned Parenthood a few episodes ago, is the le- largest private funder of abortion and contraception in in the in certainly the United States, probably the world. Um, uh, they uh, Alliance for Justice also takes money from the Soros Network, the Open Society Foundations. Uh, neo-philanthropy, labor unions, and other, other they've even taken some money from other liberal organizations like the National Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, and now, let's stop you right there. Isn't that interesting? Environmentalists, you don't normally think of judicial nominations and environmentalists, but apparently there's a link. Uh, there, there is a link, and it has to do with the fact that environmentalist organizations are a lot less, are much less about conservation, actual preservation of lands and so forth than they used to be, and they're now a lot about government policy and government regulation. Um, I mean, they, I believe the NRDC is headed by a former Obama administration EPA official. If uh, Rhea Sun Tzu is her name. Well, lots of revolving doors but between lots the of, Yeah, lots of revolving and, yeah. doors between the environmental groups and the regulatory arms of the government during the during the Obama administration. Yes, and I will throw out there as well that you you talked about uh, how the important the regulations, the administrative state, uh, and the court system, which is going to oversee that as well, how important that is to environmentalists. My uh, best example of that to me in recent years would be um, uh, one of the most outrageous things the Obama administration did was its so-called clean energy plan, better— The clean power plan. Clean power plan, uh, which— which was I won't remotely bore readers with the getting in the weeds of, but it was a very technical, but very uh, it, it was a very technical twist in regulations that would have had a that was obscure, but had a huge would have had a huge effect on the cost of your electricity bill every single month. It would have driven it up 
greatly. And the way that it was handled in the regulatory process was completely outrageous. They didn't follow any of the laws or regulations governing the regulatory process. And if you do outrages like that against the rule of law, you need to have justices that don't care about the rule of law to go, oh, fine, fine, we'll wave that through. No, yeah, whatever. Uh, so I just make that point that the, that's right. another reason that the stakes in these battles are really high. Yeah, they, the, the influence, we, <clears throat> it, is, it is unfortunate that the courts have this much influence over, their li- over our lives, but they do. Yes, and for more on the uh, Clean Power Plan, just go to capitalresearch.org. So there's another big group we should get to here as uh, well. And then, so the, the American Constitution Society, which is both, both factions, the conservatives have the Federalist Society, who we'll get to, uh, the liberals have the American Constitution Society, uh, You've noted that originally it was called the Madison Society, but because of the because, because Madison because, the Madison because Madison was the so-called father of the Constitution, but between that sort of patriarchy sound and the fact that he owned slaves, they they changed the name. But yeah, it, uh, it, it was originally it was it came after the Federalist Society, right. designed to be the anti-Federalist right. Design, Society. Yeah, designed to be for the Federalist Society is for conservative lawyers to develop conservative legal philosophy. ACS is the Liberal Lawyers Association to further develop liberal. Uh, living constitutionalist uh, judicial philosophy, again funded by the usual suspects, uh, most of which we've nom- most of which we've discussed here, and uh, they're a little bit newer than Alliance for Justice. They've been around since two thousand and one. Okay, well then let's turn to the conservative side of the ledger. Uh, the most obvious and famous at this point would be the the Federalist Society that you've mentioned. Yeah, they're the like I mentioned, they're the conservative legal policy development people. Uh, they are very close with the Trump administration. Uh, I believe it has now been announced that Leonard Leo, uh, their vice one, president, yeah, their, their vice president, has taken a leave of absence from the Federalist Society. One presumes that that is to advise uh, the government or the nominee on the confirmation process. Yes, Leonard has has done. Uh, <laughs> Leonard always takes leaves of absence from the Federalist Society, which is five hundred one c three, and therefore right. cannot properly. Uh, be uh, be fighting for a Senate vote on a nominee, uh, so he takes leave of absence to help uh, to help run that. Other uh, very important thought leaders in that world would also be uh, Ed Whalen, who blogs mm-hmm. at National Review. Hey, he's with, and he's with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Yeah, he's head of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and a, another uh, one of the sharpest guys on uh, the conservative side for these things, and. Um, to say a little bit more about the Federal Society, this is a great this is a great philanthropy lesson too, because uh, what happened was there was a conservative org- uh, foundation called the John M. Oland Foundation, which is now gone because they it spent it itself is, down. It has spent it rather than like the Ford Foundation, uh, giving itself perpetual existence so they can then be hijacked by the liberal children and the liberal program staff. Uh, it spent itself into non-existence before that could happen. Yes, while it was still conservative. And it's all it did was give a relatively small amount of money to have a summer conference of legal, great legal scholars like Judge Bork, like his, like Scalia, like my uh, great con law professor, uh, Walter Burns, um, and some uh, other faculty at law schools and some students. They just had a summer conference, which happens all the time. I say it was a pittance as far as money goes, but it was wildly successful because conservatives in legal academe were so upset about how crazy things were going on the activist direction. And it was because of its great success, 
uh, it was decided, well, hey, we ought to make this into an actual institution, and that's how the Federalist Society was born. Now, the great neoconservative godfather, so-called Irving Kristol, who was very uh, influential both intellectually but also in philanthropy, uh, he, he was, I believe, on the board of Olin at the time and, in retrospect, called it the greatest Olin grant of all time because the Federal Society a, has a, had such— And that's a, reasonable, that's a reasonable assessment. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't believe there is a law school in America that does not have a Federalist Society chapter, and then obviously you well, have— Well, and, and, and it has been a fertile ground for growing uh, future Republican— Republican-nominated conservative originalist judges and uh, and and lawyer and lawyer advocates. No. Uh, so and the the two gray. If you want to dig deeper into this, folks, you can uh, you can look at two uh, books. One, the Philanthropy Roundtable, published during my time there by John Miller, called uh, Strategic Investment and in Ideas. And uh, from the left-hand side, uh, Stephen Tellez uh, wrote The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement. Um, and, which is a good history on this, that the Federalist Society, or FedSoc as it's called, uh, they cooperated with, even though he was a big liberal and it was for Princeton University Press, uh, but there's a lot to be learned there. One of the things, by the way, that's to be learned there is that had Judge Bork not been martyred by the left, you might not have had, the, maybe the Federal Society would have petered out, because within two years of his martyrdom, the Federal Society had double the funding. At when you're... Not only is it a great, not only is it a great recruiting tool when the other side raises the stakes, the stakes are always raised. Yes. <laughs> they, they don't, they don't go back to being the stakes that they were before, which is we're going to get to that in a moment. Yes, and then and and in fact, we should add. Speaking speaking of that martyrdom, we should we should discuss the attempted martyrdom of Clarence Thomas, who was a George H. W. Bush nominee. Um, and was about to get voted on by the Senate when all of a sudden there was uh, uh, a dubiously sourced allegation that he had committed impro that he had done Im improper things uh, in a previous position. Yes, yeah, spoken improper words, really, but uh, is about the, uh, what it amounted to. It, but at the time, it we had we had different standards at the time. We had, we had different standards at the time, <laughs> and. Uh, it was quite shocking, and the Judiciary Committee came back and held more hearings, uh, but in the end, he still, uh, despite the smears, was on the court. Now, I will tell you, the scariest thing to, for me in all that is, at the time, 60% or more of the American public said, oh, yeah, I believe Clarence Thomas, because they had seen the actual hearings mm. uh, that were going on, and it was pretty clear that uh, Thomas was a uh, fiercely yeah. righteous man and, and it was it was it was innocent of the charges and denied all this and every woman who had ever worked with Thomas mm. just about uh, uh, testified uh, what a good guy was one thing I remember is in a, in a house you know, uh, House of Representatives office where you're jammed in like lemmings, the women said that not only had they never heard him ever utter anything salacious, they had never heard him utter a curse word in a House of Representatives Which office. Which would be the first time that anyone was in a House of Representatives office and didn't utter a swear word. <laughs> yes, that, that, so anyway, somehow the American people by 60% or more <laughs> believed Clarence Thomas, but one year later the same poll was taken because of course the left-wing media had had a constant drumbeat that that, oh, well, you know, well, he was accused of these pretty awful things, and we all kind of know, you know, he he squeaked in somehow. And a year later, the same poll is taken, and a majority of Americans said they did not believe Clarence Thomas. So if you wonder why conservatives get angry about left-wing bias well, in the media. Of course, it ultimately doesn't matter, because Mr. Justice Thomas has been Mr. Justice Thomas for 26 years. Yes. <laughs> 20, 26 years and counting, <laughs> as, of, as of when we sat down to record. Now, uh, there's another conservative group that we should talk about as well. 
Uh, yes, that's the Judicial Crisis Network. Uh, we mentioned that Demand Justice is going to looking to spend $10 million opposing whoever gets nominated uh, and other uh, Trump administration nominees for the lower courts. Well, the Judicial Crisis Network is the uh, conservative group that is going to defend the nominee. Uh, they have promised a, quote, seven-figure campaign uh, to support the support whoever gets nominated, and one also presumes to support nominees for the lower courts. Yep. And I will say that I have never confirmed this story with anyone, but I, but I uh, believe that it's uh, quite likely to be true, which is that a Judicial Crisis Network was in some ways the brainchild of Karl Rove. And that, and that, would, be, and that would be smart, as we mentioned, uh, you know, we, we've mentioned Bork, we've mentioned now Thomas, let's mention one, let's mention a third, Miguel Estrada. Uh, in 2003, he was nominated to the D.C. Circuit, to be in the on-deck circle yeah. for a potential Supreme Court vacancy. And the uh, Senate Democrats, led by Chuck Schumer, who is now the Senate uh, Senate Minority Leader, he was at the time Minority Whip, I think, um, they led a filibuster, a minority blockade of his nomination, in part because Estrada was Latino. Uh, and... Although, you know, and that sort of started the the snowballing that led to the first threats to get rid of the judicial filibuster in 2006 that were uh, set aside by a compromise, the ultimate decision by Harry Reid to get rid of the judicial filibuster in 2013, and Mitch McConnell uh, confirming Neil Gorsuch by uh, overriding the filibuster uh, and getting rid of it for Supreme Court nominations. And now... Again, the Democrats have said they're going to go to war, war to the knife. But the question is, what weapon? You know, what they they don't have very many op options to block it because the Republicans have the Senate majority. Yes, although we'll we'll touch on in a second that there's a few tricky things on that uh, to some degree. But uh, but no, my, the, the the story that I had heard, though I never confirmed it with Carl, was that. Uh, he precisely said, look, the other side has all these other pressure groups, and uh, and the Federal Society is not a pressure group. The Federal Society is a C3. Right. It's, it's, a, know, it's, a, sort of, it's a sort of backwards American, it's a sort of backwards American constitution society. Now, the ACS is created to be the intellectual counterpart to FedSoc. JCN is created to be the uh, activist pressure campaign counterpart to people for the American way. Yes. Although we should also, it occurs to me to be fair on the pressure groups back and forth, that uh, the Federal Society was not completely clear when it was first starting, is this just going to be sort of a think tanky kind of thing, or is it going to be a broader membership thing? And again, the Bork martyrdom made a difference because the American Bar Association um, played a very big role in defeating Bork. In fact, five members, I believe, of the committee to, to give a rating of Bork refused to say that he was uh, qualified, which was laughable on its face yeah, since he's one of the leading scholars in America. Um, but uh, so that helped to persuade the Federal Society's leaders that we need to have a large membership society that is like the American Bar Association. Uh, and, and that is exactly yeah, what they created. Can serve as a counterpart. So... Uh, Moving on, I mentioned that this is going to be war to the knife, and you mentioned that demand justice is probably, as we speak, still standing on the Supreme Court uh, with their fill-in-the-blank signs. Um, the 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 liberals and demand justice are demanding that 
uh, President Trump break his uh, break his promise to choose from the list that we mentioned earlier, the list that was is widely believed. I believe I'd, have they confirmed that Federal Society was consulted on the list, or uh, I, I don't think there's any. Don't they, yeah, there, doubt there, there that is. The Federal it, Society it, it assisted. Is, it is in... <laughs> it is widely and universally believed that people related to the Federalist Society assisted in the compilation of the list. Um, the now, as as we all know, President Trump has been known to spoil for a fight. <laughs> um, and I think this is one that Senate Republicans will insist that he take, even if he, I don't think he's ever had the instinct to back down on anything in his life, uh, other than, other than, uh, casinos in Atlantic city. <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to, so we're going to have the, we're going to have the war to the knife. <laughs> yes. And the other thing we're going to have is people insisting that they're, they're just defending, uh, a process in principle. Yeah, process, process arguments. Let's tell. Let's tell. I, I will refer to the principle uh, which I call Barone's law after uh, the AEI political uh, political analyst and friend of the Capital Research Center, Michael Barone, uh, who succinctly put it: all process arguments are insincere, including this one. Uh, the Democrats, uh, Senate Democratic leader uh, Chuck Schumer, most of the Democrats in the Senate have said, hey, wait a minute, you know, in 2016, when Antonin Scalia died, Mitch McConnell, you didn't have a vote on President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. Uh, well, it's an election, you know, it's an election year, we should have no vote on we should let the people decide and have no vote on whoever gets nominated. Of course, in 2010, the Democrat, Democratic President Barack Obama nominated liberal justice Elena Kagan, uh, and the Senate Democrats confirmed Elena Kagan. Um, now, of course, there's a little, you know, it's a little awkward, you know, obviously a presidential election and a midterm election are different, uh, and historically the precedents are, are different. There have been nine uh, modern era nominations of uh, completed nominations, you know, confirmations of a nominee uh, in a midterm election year. Unsurprisingly, almost all of those, the Senate and the president were of the same party, and the one that wasn't was David Souter, who might as well have been. <laughs> um, yes. So, you know, expect a lot of insincere process arguments to be made in, in, this, in this debate over the next couple months. No, that, that is a certainty. And the, um, uh, the other thing to mention is that, uh, we said it before, but Republicans do not have the anything like the record of Democrats when it comes to their nominees uh, making them happy in the long term, it is worth remembering that Reagan and George H.W. Bush literally appointed a majority of the Supreme Court at the time, and yet regularly and got still And still had William Rehnquist, a Nixon appointee who actually was a conservative, on the court. Yes, as uh, Chief Justice. As, yes. as, as Chief Justice. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, but because obviously Souter basically did the full, the full flip, the full Jen Rubin, uh, and became a hard became a hard liberal after he was nominated, and because Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy were inconsistent weather veins, uh, the republic the Republican record of judicial appointments is not great. That's one of yep. the reasons that I mean that's one of the reasons the Federal Society exists to build an intellectual framework under which you get less weather veiny justices. <laughs> yes. Uh, the the other thing that we should point out, and so folks might even remember this one, is uh, George W. Bush had the very unusual uh, case of putting forth a nominee, which was his White House counsel, his Harriet White House Myers, counsel, Harry Myers. Um, 
with whom I did overlap. In fact, she vetted me for, for <laughs> when I was coming on the Domestic Policy Council. So she got to be the one to ask me if I've had affairs or am I a big drug user and all that. But um, uh, luckily, I'm a very boring guy. But uh, she was nominated uh, with uh, the president thinking that, well, look, I... He nominated her because right, right, right. he thought this is somebody I've known for years. Right. I this trust is somebody her. I know. This is somebody I know and trust. And the Senate Republicans said, "Nope, try yes. again." <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, and the broader conservative movement. I mean, Laura Ingram, for instance, oh, uh, and folks like that were furious they, because Harriet Myers was not considered to Harri be because because Harriet Myers had no judicial record of having judged in actual cases of judging. Yes. Well, and and they wanted another Scalia or Bork, who's a you know uh, who are and, giants of intellect. And they ended up getting. Samuel Alito, who authored my favorite decision of the of the of the last term uh, of the recently completed Supreme Court term, Janice V. asked me, uh, holding that uh, government worker unions do not have the power to force dissident non-members to pay them agency fees. Yes, and Kennedy joined him on that case I, in uh, yeah, five to four, making the five to four. Yeah. But uh, so it was interesting that the that the. Uh, Republicans rebelled against their own nominee, as it were, uh, and that turned out, in that case, turned out well for them. One of the, there will certainly be, I mean, you, you talked about how the Republicans right this second, theoretically, the, the Republicans have the, uh, a majority of votes in the Senate, and of course they have, if there's a tie, Mike Pence breaks right. a tie, but there are at least three people who are a little touch and go. One is Senator yeah, one, McCain. One is Senator John McCain, who is currently undergoing brain cancer treatment and may not be available to vote. Yes, he may not even be able to vote. Plus, he is notorious for surprising people yeah, and, and not going along with the party. Um, although I don't, I can't recall him ever doing anything bad. He has never. He has never. He has to. Somebody was passing around all the Republican senators who had voted against a judicial nomination going back to Bork. Uh, McCain is not one of them. Yeah, so so it, that isn't too likely, but the, but the health issue is is yeah is the health a, the health issue, issue is is serious. Although if he were to either die or resign, uh, uh, Republican Governor uh, Doug Ducey would appoint a replacement through I think twenty twenty. So so so, so there's a so, so there's a possibility if his vote is absolutely necessary that that arrangements that could, could arrangements done. could be made. And then uh, but then there also are a couple of senators on the Republican side who are. Off right, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Uh, the I don't know if they have publicly said that they won't vote for someone who won't pledge to support Roe v. Wade, but I know privately at least one there, of them has there, said that. There is, uh, both of them are pro-choice, both of them are friends of Planned Parenthood, uh, both of them are friends of the Teachers Union, uh, and they hold theoretically the balance of power. Now, that list that was being passed around the other day, neither has voted against a Republican Supreme Court nomination that made it to the floor. So if it came if it came to that, again, they're going to have consultation and that and they may be a break on the appointment of somebody like Judge Pryor, a very staunch, very aggressive social conservative from Alabama. Uh, but if a mainstream, I mean, both of them voted for Neil Gorsuch. Importantly, both of them voted to break the filibuster for Neil Gorsuch. Uh, if. I would be I would be surprised if a justice in if a judge if a nominee in the mold of Neil Gorsuch, if they defected. Yes, and of course uh, there are all kinds of theories floating around. Uh, oh that, yeah, that somehow one of the, you know any of the dissident Republican senators who don't like the president would somehow throw would throw like it would, Flake or would throw like would that. throw it away would throw it away just despite the president. I that's wishful thinking. I I mean I I loathe the president, but if you appoint someone from his list. 
I will loathe anyone who votes against who who, well, who, yeah, the, who opposes well, anyone on the list. Yes. The, well, this is one of the this is one of the the, the tricky things that um, judicial philosophy unites all the branches of conservatism. Nobody, no, the, the sternest never Trumper has never criticized yeah, the, and, Trump and, on and his the, judges. And the factional, you know, and and all the all the factional divides, you know. I mean, yeah, there there are going to be some conservative justices libertarians aren't going to like, and some libertarian justices the conservative that social conservatives aren't going to like. But generally and broadly. Uh, that some somebody with a with a good and established record is going is going to unite the fact is going to unite the factions of the conservative movement in a way that a fight over tariffs or a fight over um, foreign policy is going to fracture everyone. Yes. No. So it, this this is a big help for the House and Senate, even though the House isn't going to well, vote well, on could, well, House well, and Senate midterms. Well, it could be because here's because here's the here's the ga- here's the galaxy brain take. Let's assume that. The Republicans get a good nominee and get him through, which means that for at least two years, the Republican, the conservative bloc, obviously this is all contingent on uh, the health of the justices, but the that the uh, the conservatives are going to have a check on at least one in at least one branch. Uh, and and two branches for the two years that President Trump of the President Trump's first term, that it may call in that it the question is will it calm conservative voters to say okay we well, you know this we're, we're we're good for a little while or will it or will it rally them promise kept republican senators even the republican senators i don't like voted for it like you know are we going to you know are they going to be rallied uh i i think that there's a balancing on either side and of course there's equal opposite reactions the left is going to mobilize you know, demand justice is going to be out there getting names, getting sign- getting petition signatures that they're going to hit up for. They're they're going to rent that list and hit up hit up for resources and hit up for, uh, hit up for remind you know hit up for reminders to engage in the political process. Uh, I, I think you're going to see intensity. You're going to see intensity on both sides, and I'm not sure who who's going to benefit uh, in a purely political sense, in a purely pundit punditological sense. Um. I, th- I think there are there are pressure there are pressures on and on both sides in both ways, and of course, if as seems fairly likely, the Democrats fail to defeat the nominate fail fail to defeat the nomination of a main of a mainstream conservative nominee, is that going to then depress liberals who got all hotted up to to defeat the nomination? Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're in Republicans experienced that in twenty you know uh, in twenty thirteen with the fight over uh, quote unquote defund Obamacare. Uh, I think there was probably there was probably some some deflation when that ultimately failed. Uh, of course, then after a year, they won the twenty fourteen elections that proved so consequential because they kept Merrick Garland off the Supreme Court. So it, the it definitely the, goes back and back it, and forth a lot. Every everybody's everybody gets this is this is a mo- this is a mobile thing. Everybody gets to push and everybody gets to play and everyone is going to be in the game and. You know, any projection that is based on the assumption that somebody's going to sit out the game, I think at this point goes out the window. Absolutely. Well, uh, that is our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, you should know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube. You can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.